to someone before you sit down? Stand back up if you sat down already. My name is Ruth. I'm one of the pastors here. And today is week three in our Lenten series, Heart Cries from the Cross. And I think we have a slide for that. Um, through this series, we're looking at uh, seven statements that Jesus made on the cross that are recorded in the Gospels. The author of Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Can we go back? Back up the slide, I think. Um, so Jesus was on the cross for uh, six hours. So he could have said lots of things, right, um, in that time. But there are seven statements that have been recorded and, and treasured uh, by followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Um, so clearly, these statements are significant. So um, now we can go on to the next slide. Uh, Lent is traditionally a series when um, we, it's a time of the year when we, on the next slide, Yay. Okay, it's a season for reflection and repentance and for transformation, as we've been talking about for the last uh, few weeks. Um, it's a time when we slow down, when we think about who we are, who God is. It's a time for us to reconsider our lives and um, to repent or to rethink, as that word means. A time when we open our minds and hearts to being transformed by the love of God. So through this series, what we're trying to do is not exactly define what Jesus meant uh, by each of these sayings. Um, obviously, we are going to study them a little bit and, and you know, see what the words mean. But the aim is not to come away with some kind of an objective uh, academic understanding of, okay, this is what this passage means. But rather, we want to create space um, for God to speak to us through these words. This is more of a contemplative approach. This is, um, this is us looking at Jesus stripped naked, literally and metaphorically, uh, looking at Jesus at his very darkest moments, gazing into the heart of God, the very vulnerable heart of God. And today we're going to be looking at the saying, woman, here is your son. And then turning to the disciple, here is your mother. This is a word of belonging. And uh, Gina is going to come and read that passage to us now. John 19, 17, 30. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing him into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. 
This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We've looked at uh, John's gospel a fair bit recently, and uh, you might remember that it is different from the other three gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's not so much a history of Jesus's life and teaching as it is an interpretation of that history. It's heavily stylized. It's structured in a very specific way. There's lots of symbolism. The author of this gospel, whoever he was, and it's uh, anonymous, um, has a very clear purpose. And he gives that purpose towards the end of the book. We read, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the author is trying to uh, help his readers to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that they will believe and have life life to the full, eternal life, the life that he talks about throughout this gospel. And given this focus, the author presents Jesus in certain ways to communicate that who he is. And one of those ways is to present Jesus as always being in control of every situation, including and actually particularly in these hours leading up to his death. Jesus is consistently presented as knowing what's going to happen and as choosing to act in certain ways that fulfill scripture or um, that in other ways show um, that who he is as the Messiah, the Son of God. As we just read, the author also describes a series of signs, and there are other signs that are not in this book, but there is a series of signs in the Gospel of John. And these are linked to miracles, but they're not synonymous with miracles. The miracle is not the point. Uh, but rather what the miracle shows about Jesus, that's the sign. The vast majority of scholars agree that there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. Seven was uh, considered a holy number. It's uh, a perfect number that expressed completion. And as we noted, this author is uh, very much into symbolism. It, for example, he has seven I am statements about Jesus's identity. Jesus's I am the bread of life, etc. 
Uh, but while most people agree that there are seven signs, um, the, they're not all neatly uh, numbered. Uh, and so there are there's some ambiguity about exactly what those signs are. John will use the word, or the author of John will use the word signs, but it's like, well, it, did it mean that bit or that bit, or, or are they part of the same sign? So the list is um, a little bit, it can vary depending on which commentary or which, you know, which source you look at. Um, the first two are not in doubt because he said this is the first sign and this is the second sign, but after that it gets a little bit more ambiguous. But this is a pretty uh, widely accepted list. Um, so we have first the wedding feast at Cana. That's when Jesus turns the water into wine. Uh, then there is the restoration of a dying son. That's when the, the, a, a nobleman comes to Jesus and begs him to heal his son who is on the point of dying, has a fever. And Jesus speaks the word and the son is healed. And then we have uh, a Sabbath healing of a, a man who'd been ill for 38 years. We're not told what was wrong with him, uh, but he had some kind of, of an infirmity and Jesus meets him, tells him to pick up his mat and walk. That's on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders get very upset because it seems Jesus is ignoring the rules about working on the Sabbath. Um, and then we have the feeding of the 5,000. And this is, um, that, that's a very well-known story. I think we know that one about multiplying the bread and fish. Uh, but this is something of a turning point in the Gospel of John. It's just after this story that the crowds become very antagonistic towards uh, Jesus and reject him. And we, we have a shift in tone of the, of the whole story. Um, and then we see the same pattern repeated, but more intensely. Um, so Jesus, again, heals on the Sabbath. Uh, but this time, it's not a person who'd been disabled or ill for a long time. It's someone who was actually born blind. Um, and then we um, see uh, a, another restoration. This time, it's not someone who's on the point of dying. It's someone who actually is dead. This is the raising of Lazarus, comes back from the dead, restored to life. And then the final sign, the ultimate sign that reveals Jesus's true identity is his death and subsequent resurrection. And our passage today, obviously, is part of that sign. Um, this ultimate revelation of Jesus's true identity. And that's the context in which we're going to look at Jesus's saying for today, um, which we read in uh, verse 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother there and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So in, in addition to Jesus, we have two characters, obviously, in this uh, little vignette. We have Jesus's mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mary, Jesus's mother, uh, only appears twice in John's gospel and is mentioned briefly in a third place. Um, but each of these placements is very strategic and the contexts all relate to Jesus's identity with respect to his human family. Um, if we look at the seven signs again, which we've got up here, we can see um, that Mary appears in this story, this first one, the wedding feast at Cana. Then she's mentioned briefly at this middle turning point, the feeding of the 5,000. And then obviously again, this final scene here. Um, so we're not, we're not gonna read this first one, the, uh, the, the um, wedding at Cana. We actually looked at it a couple of months ago. You might remember as part of our series on kindness and it's a, a pretty well-known story. The context is the formation of a new family. It's a wedding. And it's very probably a relative of Jesus who's getting married, given Mary's uh, role on the logistical side of the event. The wine's run out. I'm sure you remember. Mary turns to Jesus, her firstborn son, and asks him to do something for the family. 
Mary is actually never named in the Gospel of John. But in this story, we have four references to the mother of Jesus. But when Jesus speaks to her, he addresses her as woman. Uh, we read in uh, chapter two, verse four, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And this word woman kind of uh, sounds rather abrupt, I think, uh, to us. And uh, all the commentaries are very quick to say, you know, this wasn't rude. In fact, it was very polite. It's like saying uh, my lady or madam. Um, but it was very formal. And nowhere else in the literature do we see a son referring to his own mother as woman. So this seems to be something that's intentionally unusual. And Jesus tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. The implication here seems to be that Mary is not in a position to tell Jesus what to do. Jesus doesn't refer to her here as mother because he's guided not by family obligations, but by his mission. The hour, which is a prominent theme in the Gospel of John. The hour when Jesus's identity will be fully revealed. And that hour has not yet come. Jesus in the story seems to resist being identified as a wonder worker, you know, someone who comes in, steps in and uh, saves the day and uh, provides for everyone. This is not an identity that he is embracing, certainly not an identity that he wants broadcast far and wide. Nevertheless, his mother instructs the servants uh, to obey whatever Jesus tells them. And ultimately, Jesus instructs them to fill the water jars with water and take some of the water, which has now become wine, to the master of the banquet. And their obedience to Jesus results in the gift of fine wine, the best wine, as the, the master of the banquet calls it. But this wasn't assigned to the wedding party. It wasn't assigned to all the villagers that are gathered there. Only the servants who drew the water and the disciples and Jesus's mother saw the sign. To everyone else, Jesus's identity is uh, still hidden. And the story ends with this verse. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. So Jesus has not left his family. He's still with them, but they are not calling the shots. Jesus is on a mission. And then we don't hear anything more about Jesus's mother until that turning point in Jesus in uh, John's gospel. After Jesus has multiplied the five loaves and the two fish and fed that crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. This is another miracle that provides for physical needs, like the wedding at Cana. And it's also steeped in a lot of symbolism. Jesus has now miraculously provided both bread and wine, some pretty obvious symbolism there. Again, we're not going to go into any of the uh, details of that story. But after that event, the crowds try to make Jesus king by force, and he withdraws from them. But they catch up with him the next day and ask him for another sign. Why wouldn't they, right? I mean, free food in, in a, a time when uh, people went hungry regularly. But Jesus says, stop looking at the miracle. Stop focusing on that and look to the actual sign. It's not about food. It's about my identity. I am the bread. I'm the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. I am what you need, not just physical food. We read in chapter six. At this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? So the crowds can't accept that Jesus has a divine identity because they know his human family. They know Mary. They know Joseph. Jesus' humanity is clear. So how can he be divine? 
Previously, Jesus kept his identity hidden. Now he reveals that identity, but people reject it. And then thirdly, we come to today's story. Just before Jesus is arrested, we read in chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So this story, this final sign, stands in contrast to the first sign. Now the hour has come. Now Jesus' identity will be fully revealed for everyone to see. And in this story too, Mary has a role to play. Again, four times the author refers to the mother of Jesus, but she's not named. And again, Jesus addresses her as woman, putting something of a distance between himself and Mary. Again, a new family is being formed, this time not through marriage, but through adoption. Jesus gives Mary a new son, a disciple referred to repeatedly through John's gospel as uh, the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. Wine is again involved in this story. Uh, we're told that after making this statement, Jesus drank bitter wine or vinegar wine, the worst wine. Jesus had given humanity the best wine, but here he's given the worst. And he drinks it in obedience to fulfill scripture. John makes it clear that Jesus lays down his life. He chooses to lay down his life in obedience to the will of the Father. And it's this obedience that reveals Jesus's true identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. So we can see lots of symbolism, clear contrast here between the first and last signs in John's gospel. But what's the significance of this story? What does it mean for us? Why is it being included beyond being something of a literary device? Well, there are a number of things that make this story significant. First, this story validates the Johannine community. I might remember from our previous series on the first epistle of John that there was a community in Ephesus that was associated with the apostle John. Possibly he was the founder of that community or he spent time with them, but they treasured um, John's gospel. And in fact, probably the writer of John's gospel came from that community in Ephesus. Um, as most probably did the writer of the three anonymous letters that we, we call in our Bibles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The title beloved disciple or disciple that Jesus loved is mentioned several times in the gospel and is presented as a real person, but also as a model of a faithful follower. And he seems to be someone who's close to this community, the Johannine community. It could be another name for the apostle John. Some people think it is. Or it could have been another follower of Jesus who served as an eyewitness for the community in Ephesus. But either way, the disciple who Jesus loved seems to have had um, been the first hand link between the, the community in Ephesus and Jesus. We, we read in our passage today that from that time forward, this disciple took Mary into his home. There are two ancient traditions about Mary. One is that she died in Jerusalem. And um, there is a chapel on, on the next slide um, that's built over what is supposed to be her burial site. But there's also a second tradition that she did indeed follow the beloved disciple to Ephesus, the Johannine community. And there is a chapel over um, what is supposedly her house in um, in. Ephesus, modern day Turkey. So you can visit them both. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church traditionally teaches that Jesus, through the story, makes Mary the mother of the whole church. Now that seems a bit of a stretch to me, to be honest. After all, Mary is taken into the disciples' home to be cared for. She doesn't take him in. There's a vulnerability to Mary here. Um, 
she doesn't take charge she's not you know becomes the leader in any way of, of this uh, of the church as a whole but she does in a way become the mother of the Johannine community, the community at Ephesus. She's made the mother of the beloved disciple who founded or was a leader of this community. And that's important because as you might remember from our last series, being able to connect back to Jesus himself was really important. It was a big deal. People wanted to know that they were getting the genuine story. New ideas were going around. People were saying, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah or maybe he wasn't really human. So who knows? Well, the eyewitnesses know. The people closest to Jesus know. Although Jesus's brothers didn't believe in him during uh, his lifetime, after the death and resurrection, Jesus appears to his brother, James. And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, James subsequently did believe in Jesus. I think that would do it to you, right? You see your brother, uh, brother is killed and then appears to you. I think you'd probably rethink. I've often wondered about that meeting, actually. I, I, if you imagine it from Jesus's perspective, um, his brother, who he, who he grew up with, um, doesn't believe in him. He's not there for you when you are being killed. He's not there for your mother, even, uh, apparently. Um, someone that you, that you played with, that you went to school alongside, someone who, who really knows you well, uh, doesn't believe in you. And um, I think that must have been incredibly painful. And then Jesus appears to him, and I wonder what was said. Uh, we don't know anything about that meeting, just that it happened. I can imagine it being so emotional, so deep uh, for James that he never really wanted to talk about it. We don't know that. I'm just making it up. Um, but it does make you think, doesn't it? I mean, these are real people, and, and you just wonder what that, what that meeting must have been like. However, that meeting played out. James went on to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in the Christian scriptures, he's often referred to as the Lord's brother. So the Jerusalem church had a very clear and strong link back to Jesus himself. The community could be confident um, that they were following the way of Jesus faithfully because um, the Lord's own brother was a leader in the church. And what we see here in this story is that the Johannine community could also be confident that they were being true to the faith because they had a strong link back to Jesus too. The founder or the leader of their community was the adopted brother of Jesus. Jesus' own mother had become part of this community or at least uh, associated with it in a strong way. They were every bit as uh, true and essential a part of the church as the church in Jerusalem. Second, this uh, story emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Here we have his mother and his beloved disciple at the foot of, foot of the cross. His mother is a reminder that Jesus was somebody's baby, somebody's son. There are other women there too, but it seems there was only one male disciple present at the foot of the cross. Presumably the others were all in hiding. Uh, some commentators make the point that men would have been considered more of a threat to the soldiers around and so wouldn't have been allowed near the cross, um, you know, because maybe they'd stir up resistance or something, uh, unlike women who they wouldn't see as a threat. That might be true. Um, or maybe we want an excuse for the disciples. I don't know. Uh, but this disciple was there. He uh, maybe because he was young, some people say, and he was in the company of women. So not a threat. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but the gospel is clear. He was right there. He was close. He saw what happened. He was an eyewitness to Jesus's agonizing death. And that's important because, I'm afraid to say, women's testimony didn't count. 
But here we have a male eyewitness who can confirm there is no question that Jesus physically died. And again, you might remember from our last series, there were people stirring up the community in Ephesus saying that uh, Jesus actually didn't have flesh and blood and didn't physically die. So here the beloved disciple can confirm, no, he did. I was there. But this story doesn't just provide facts about Jesus's humanity. It's also a very emotional scene if you, if you stop and really think about it. Uh, and later, this story was used for devotion. Uh, for example, Egeria was a nun who took a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the fourth century, pretty early on. And she recorded her experience of the Good Friday services in Jerusalem. She writes, the entire time from the sixth to the ninth hour is occupied by public readings. They all concern the things that Jesus suffered. First, they have the Psalms on this theme, then the apostolic epistles and Acts, which deals with it. And finally, the passages from the gospels. Dispersed among these readings are prayers all fitting to the day. It is impressive to see the way all the people are moved by these readings and how they mourn. You could hardly believe how every single one of them weeps during those three hours, old and young together, because of the way the Lord suffered for us. We see the emotional pull of a mother grieving her son at the foot of the cross, depicted in artwork down through the centuries. Um, there are no known depictions of the crucifixion in art um, for the first few centuries, which is perhaps not surprising. I mean, this was a, a horrific event, perhaps not something you rush to make art out of. Um, but there is an ivory box that survives from the year 420. I think we have a picture of that. Um, and you can, uh, you can see that we have, um, there's uh, John and Mary right there. There's also Judas hanging from the tree. <laughs> so that's from 420. Um, and there's also a, an illumination from um, uh, Syriac Gospels from the year 586. And again, we've got uh, Mary and uh, John down here in this corner. Uh, and in both of these artworks, you might notice that Jesus is very upright and um, actually, if you, if you can see more, more detail, uh, somewhat victorious looking in, in these early depictions. It's not until considerably later um, that Jesus's body is, is shown to sag and, and there's uh, more pathos in the paintings um, and in the statues and in the songs. Uh, for example, I, uh, we have one from the late 13th century. Uh, this is from um, a painting from the school of Duccio. And he, I, I don't know if you can see, it's kind of small, but Jesus's body is very much sagging. And um, maybe you can look at these later, but, but John and Mary, they're not just looking impassively, uh, but there's real grief and distress that's showing. Also in the 13th century, there's a 20 verse hymn about Mary grieving at the foot of the cross called Stabat Mater, Mother Standing. Um, and it was hugely popular as a devotional hymn. And I, actually it's still sung today. Uh, but Mary was viewed as representative of the response of all believers uh, to Jesus's self-sacrificial love. And from this perspective, Jesus in this story is being a loving and obedient firstborn son, carrying out his legal responsibility to ensure uh, the well-being of his widowed mother and someone who would be extra vulnerable as the mother of a, an executed criminal. And while that may be true, and, and I, th I think it does have devotional value, it's unlikely to have been the main point uh, of the story for this author, given the stylistic way in which uh, this gospel is written. So third, this story reveals the divinity of Jesus. Um, in John's gospel, Jesus is portrayed, as we said, as being in control. Uh, we see in the prologue, uh, the very 
first chapter of John, the word is pre-existent. Jesus's birth is a conscious divine decision. It's not just something that happens to Jesus. In chapter 10, Jesus says, uh, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is in control of his life and his death. And in today's story, in that final sign of Jesus's identity, we're told that Jesus knew when everything had been fulfilled and he declared it is finished. And then he seems to have deliberately bowed his head and given up his spirit. From this viewpoint, Jesus is no mere human mother's son. And so understandably, Jesus calls Mary woman, not mother. The author of John's gospel is not trying to be heart-wrenching, I don't think, in this passage. We've heard way too many times, haven't we, the, the desperate, heartbreaking cry of grown men, black men, calling for their mothers as they are being killed by the authorities. I don't know if there's anything quite so harrowing as to hear, but that's not what is going on here. Jesus doesn't say mother, he says woman. He's not looking for protection and safety in the situation. Rather, he is providing that to others. The author of John's gospel depicts Jesus's death as not being for the sake of his family or for his, his followers or even for the nation, but as for humanity as a whole. We think of that famous word, verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. From this perspective, Jesus' statements to his mother and the beloved disciple are very much symbolic. They are about so much more than human family. In fact, they transform the concept of family. As we've noted, Mary had um, other sons, Jesus's brothers, who at this point don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus says to Mary, you belong not with your other sons, but with this disciple. Jesus redefines family. He focuses not on biological ties, but on spiritual kinship. And this is actually a theme of the Gospels in general. For example, in Mark, the oldest of the four uh, Gospels, we read this. Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my brother? Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will, is my mother and sister, my brother and sister and mother. Allegiances are shifted. Priorities are transformed. Family is not about flesh and blood, but about a shared commitment to do the will of God. Luke's gospel has a slightly different perspective on Mary. Um, it was written a little bit later, used some different sources. And the author of Luke's gospel, whoever he was, um, clearly had a very high view of Mary, had a lot of respect and admiration for her. You can tell that in the way uh, his gospel's written. But even in that case, the writer um, values Mary for her faith, uh, not for her biological connection to Jesus, and not for doing a great job as mother caring for her child. In fact, the only story he includes is Mary losing her child. Uh, you know, who wants to be remembered for that? Um, but the writer of Luke honors Mary for her faith, for being a willing participant in the incarnation, for the faith and obedience when the angel appears to her. Luke presents Mary as being a, a prophet, speaking those beautiful and, and very deep, powerful words of the Magnificat. 
He describes her as a reliable witness, even though she's a woman, as someone who treasured up all the things that happened in her heart. Luke shows her joining the disciples and praying constantly with them in the upper room while they wait for the Holy Spirit to come with power. Mary was honored not because she biologically gave birth to Jesus, but because she was a woman of great faith. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear that his message will divide families. For example, in Luke chapter 12, we read, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And yet there's also a consistent promise that Jesus will provide his, his followers with a new family. For example, in Mark chapter 10, we read, then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The church, the community of people following Jesus is meant to be a family. And it's a family that starts here at the foot of the cross in the context of grief and loss and vulnerability. It doesn't start after the resurrection with joy and, and, and confidence. It doesn't start after Pentecost in the context of power. How ironic that so many of us think we need to put on a happy face to come to church. We call this message a word of belonging. Humans seem to have planted deep in our hearts a primal yearning to belong. We have different ways of responding to that yearning. We might pretend to be people that we're not to try and fit in. We might perform in certain ways so that we can be accepted. We might just keep a low profile and hope nobody notices that we don't really belong. None of those meet our real need to be known and accepted and loved just as we are. This story not just this story, but, but elsewhere in scripture too. But this story demonstrates that the church is intended to be such a place of belonging. It's designed to be a family, not an organization or an institution. And it's based not on shared characteristics or backgrounds or politics or worldviews, but on the unconditional love of God for each one of us. Mary and the beloved disciple, their relationship was first with Jesus. They belonged to him. And on that basis, they belonged to each other. They were entrusted to one another's care. And the same goes for us. We belong to Christ. And so we belong to one another. These are Jesus's dying words. There is great significance in them. At his most vulnerable moment, when he knew his life was almost over, he instructed us to care for one another and to recognize that we're family. In his final moments, he wasn't interested in teaching theology, but in telling us to love one another and to care for one another practically. I really like this uh, quote by the late Rachel Held Evans. She says, one of the most destructive mistakes we Christians make is to prioritize shared beliefs over shared relationship, which is deeply ironic considering we worship a God who would rather die than lose relationship with us. 
Jesus's dying words, but do we take them seriously? Are we willing to take others into our homes like the beloved disciple was? Are we willing to be parental figures to one another or to love and serve one another like dutiful children? Now, obviously, we are living in a very different context to first century Palestine. As believers, we're no longer violently persecuted as a minority. Uh, We're probably not reliant on one another for our very survival, which uh, sometimes was the case then. We live in a very different culture. It's very individualistic. But let's not be too quick to dismiss Jesus's recreation of family. We need to belong. We are called to belong and to give the gift of belonging to other people. Being a community, a family together can be hard work sometimes. This family, like any family, is not perfect. We might just prefer just take care of ourselves, right? But that is easier, but it's not what we're called to. It's not what Jesus asks of us. We're going to read this passage uh, together again in a moment, and then we'll take communion. So if the band want to start coming up, that would be great. Communion, of course, is a ritualized meal that we eat together as one family. And as we do both of these things, as we listen to this passage again, and as we come and take communion, let's think about two things. Firstly, let's reflect on the promise um, that we belong. We belong whether we feel like it or not. First and foremost, we belong to God. We are God's children. We are unconditionally and unreservedly loved, loved beyond all our imagining. We belong in a way that our innermost being tells us we need to belong. We belong to God and God has entrusted us to one another. So we belong to one another. We are family. Even when we don't want to be, even when we don't act like it, we belong because God says we belong. Second, we are called to create a sense of belonging for others. All of us have a role to play in this. This is not a family where some need to feel they belong and some need to uh, create a sense of belonging for others. Where some give and some take or where some care and some are cared for, we all need to care for one another. And this will look different for each of us. Uh, We will express that caring in different ways at different points in our lives. But all of us are called to love one another in real and practical ways. So we're going to read that passage again. And let's ask God to speak to our hearts, to give us a deep sense of belonging, to help us grasp in perhaps a, a new way, just how much we are treasured by God just how much we are known and accepted and loved just as we are. And let's also ask God to soften our hearts, to make us channels of God's love to others, to welcome others into our homes and hearts and lives. And then after the reading, the band will play and please come forward and uh, take communion. Everyone is welcome to do that. You can eat and drink at the tables themselves, at the front and the one in the middle. Um, or you can take that back to your seat, whatever feels most comfortable for you. Also at this time, as usual, you can uh, light a candle as a form of prayer. You might want to write out a prayer and and put it in the frames under Journey and Grow, and a team of us will will pray for you during the week. Uh, You might want to light a candle in the back corner for the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. You might want to visit one of uh, the racial justice stations here at the front side tables. You might want to make a financial gift, uh, put it in the wooden towers at the back or in in the middle station, or just sit and listen to the music. Um, Please respond as feels appropriate. But first, 
let's listen again to this passage. Maybe we'll turn the lights down just a little bit. You might want to close your eyes rather than reading it this time and just listen to these words. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots on my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Um.